Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. And if you need a Bible, put your hand up and there will be a Bible handed to you. And you can also turn with us to 2 Samuel 24. Today's message is entitled, Stumbling Down the Finish Line. Well, church, you made it. First and Second Samuel, verse by verse, it's been 43 weeks studying the life of David. And we've had some ups and downs together, haven't we? You know, it all started with David as a young shepherd boy, a nobody. And God took that shepherd boy and God used him to kill Goliath, the giant. David was trusting in God's power and God's strength and God's timing and God's plan. And he was an amazing man of faith. But as we've gone through David's life, we've seen that David also had a lot of mistakes, some of them very big ones. We read how David took multiple wives against God's law. We read how David lusted and committed adultery with Bathsheba. We saw how David tried to hide his sin through lies and deceit and even through murder. Today, as we read this last chapter in our series of First and Second Samuel, we're going to look at another of David's mistakes. At this time in David's life, he's much older. David has been carried through multiple rebellions by the Lord. God has kept him on the throne. God has even given victory over multiple giants and multiple other nations, other enemies. And I think it was this temptation of success that trips David up one last time. In today's passage, we'll cover topics like, what do we know about Satan? How can we protect ourselves from pride? We'll talk about why conviction can be a really good thing. And why some people think they are saved, but in the end, Jesus is going to turn them away. So let's jump in, 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verses 1 through 10, we read about a sinful census. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go, number Israel and Judah. Okay. Pause with me there for a moment here. So the idea to number Israel and Judah was to carry out a census, to count the people, and to, as we see later on, we get the answer, it was really to count the number of fighting men. It was to see the military strength of Israel. How many soldiers can we put together? How strong are we as a nation? This was not to honor the Lord. This was not for a simple counting of taxes or anything like that. The idea is, let's see how strong we are in our own strength. Now, interestingly, this story is repeated in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. You don't need to turn there, but I encourage you to read it on your own. But notice how in that passage, it sets the same story up a little differently. In 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, it says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So one version of the story says God moved David to number the people. And the other version of the story says Satan moved David to number the people. Which one is right? Well, the answer is they both are. You see, God is sovereign. That means he is in control. He is over all things. It means that God is even in control of Satan. The apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So we must understand two truths about Satan. And if you want to take notes today on the back of your note sheet, here's your first fill in the blanks. Two truths about Satan. Number one, he is like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. 
That is who Satan is. He is like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. We should be on guard against this extremely dangerous adversary. But the second truth about Satan is that he is on a leash, limited by God. Satan is limited. He does not have complete freedom to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Satan can only devour and destroy as God permits him. You see, Satan is not the chief rival of God. That would imply an actual competition. You see, God is in a league of his own. There is none like him. He has no beginning and he has no end. God alone is God. Satan, he was a created angel that has fallen. He's rebelled against the Lord. And his desire is to lead as many people away from God as possible. And one of the ways that Satan does that is by tempting you and I to sin, tempting us to sin. He's the great tempter. And then once he gets us to sin, then he turns around and says, look at what you did. Isn't that nice of him? So essentially, Satan is your sibling, right? (laughs) Well, maybe they were led by Satan. So therefore, the passage in Chronicles that says, Satan rose up and led David to number the people. Well, that passage in Chronicles clarifies that it was Satan who was the one that was actually tempting David to number the people. We read in James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God doesn't tempt us. Satan does the tempting. So Chronicles says Satan did the tempting. Our passage here in 2 Samuel implies that God, since he is sovereign, he allowed or permitted Satan to tempt David. And the reason for this is at the very beginning of verse 1. We read there in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. We're not given details. We don't have any idea what this is about. But the nation as a whole of Israel, in some way, shape, or form, had rebelled against the Lord. And God says, well, I need to correct my people. I need to rebuke them and bring them back on the right path that I have for them. So when Satan wanted to be that roaring, devouring lion towards David, he tempted David to sin by numbering the people and counting the military to say, oh yeah, we got this, we're strong, look at who we are, we're Israel. Meanwhile, God is in control. He's got Satan on a leash. And so God says, fine, Satan, you go ahead, you tempt David, I'll let you. But what you mean for death and destruction, I will use for a much bigger purpose. Satan's goal is simply to steal, kill, and destroy. That's all Satan cares about. But God's purpose is that through this temptation of David, God will correct Israel's unknown sin, unknown to us, and God will rebuke David of his pride, and thirdly, God will bring glory to himself. And so as we look at this passage today, I want us to learn our next fill in the blank here, the danger The danger is when we underestimate Satan or God. That's the danger for you and I. When we don't realize how crafty and deceitful Satan is, then we're not going to be ready to stand against his lies and his craftiness. We need to be prepared. We don't want to underestimate Satan. But we also don't want to forget that God is in control. God is sovereign. He is over all things. And so no matter what Satan does, God is working all things according to his plan and his purpose. So you and I need to be vigilant in resisting Satan and be confident in trusting God. So, back to verse 1, chapter 24. 
Verse 1 again says, The anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Verse 2, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Joab was the commander of David's army, and he was by no means a great guy. In fact, on at least three separate occasions, Joab, behind David's back, murdered three different people that David was trying to be friends with. Yet even with Joab's track record, even Joab recognized David's motives were wrong in calling for this census. God didn't command David to count the people. This was David's idea. And we get a glimpse here of David's pride. He's prideful, one, because he's following his leadership instead of God's leadership. David didn't seek the Lord, and then God said, count the people. That didn't happen. David said, I want to count the people. I want to see how strong we are. He's prideful also because he's finding comfort and strength in numbers rather than in God. It seems David, after his years of experience and success, He's forgotten his own words. As a young shepherd boy, as he faced Goliath, there on the battlefield, David declared in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47, he said, the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. What amazing faith for that young shepherd boy. And now he's old and he's stupid, right? He forgets his own words. Your next fill in the blank says three things that can feed pride. Success, the praises of men, and God's blessings. All three of those things can feed your pride, my pride. Success, praises of men, and God's blessings. Isn't it interesting to consider that God had blessed Israel with victory? God had blessed Israel with strength. God had blessed Israel with population growth. And now it's that very blessing that is now becoming a snare to David. It's almost like David says, well, before when I was young, our military was tiny. And we were facing Goliath and the Philistines. There was no chance. We had to rely on God. But now God's blessed us with a strong military so we can rely on the military instead of God. Wake up, David. But what a warning for us. What a warning for us. You see, when God blesses you, be ready for Satan to come along afterwards. When God blesses you with victory, when God blesses you with some spiritual work, when God blesses you by even using you and me, sinners, for his glory and for his kingdom, be ready for Satan to come along afterwards and say with his lies, oh, now you're really something special. When Satan whispers in your ear and he says, oh, you've worked hard for this. You've earned it. You deserve it. And suddenly that sin that we were in bondage to, that God delivered us from, in his strength, we're suddenly tempted to say, well, I helped. I worked hard too. I sacrificed a lot and got victory. That's what Satan wants you to do. Satan wants you to trust your gifts rather than in the gift giver. The Apostle Paul rebukes the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, when he says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The people in Corinth, they were all proud about the gifts God had given them. And Paul says, God gave you those gifts. They're nothing to boast in. 
It was God's choice. It was God's decision. Why are you boasting in those things? Everything you and I have, whether it's gifts or talents or abilities or possessions, they come from God. So why do we boast? Why do we think we've somehow earned it? We might be tempted to say, well, I've worked really hard at my job and I've earned this wealth, or I worked really hard in this position and I got that raise or whatever it may be. And that might be true, but God's the one who gave you breath. God's the one who gave you the health to go to that job. God's the one who gave you the job. God's the one who protected you from not dying in a car accident as you went to that job. We can go on. The point is, God gets the glory, not us. And so on your note sheet, there's three truths to kill pride. Three three things you and I need to remember and cling to so that we don't let that pride grow in our hearts. The first one is, without Jesus, I'm doomed to hell. We need to remember that. Without Jesus, I am doomed to hell. He is our only hope. He is our only Savior. And apart from him, we have no hope. Number two, to kill pride, we need to remember that apart from his grace, I would have and be nothing. Nothing. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord, comes from heaven above. Everything that we have is of his grace. By the way, I think I'm going to mention this later in my notes, but grace means getting something you don't deserve. Everything we have, everything we are is by his grace. Number three, any success, any praise, or any blessing that we have is for his glory, not mine. It's for his glory, not mine. This is so important because most of us know how to cling to God in our failures, right? When we fail, when we give in to temptation, when we drop the ball, when life is just storming, we realize, I don't have any control. I can't do anything. And so I cry out to the Lord. In fact, God will often use those storms to cause us to look to him once again. But not many of us know how to handle success. It's hard. You see, success tempts us to live independent from God. Success and blessing and praise tempts us to believe the lie that, you know what, Lord, the sun is shining. My life, my life is good. I don't need anything. And God says, really? And Satan says, yes. I'm winning. You see, we're tempted to trust in our past victories instead of trust in the one who gave us those victories. And Satan, that roaring lion, he loves to use success to destroy. Success in your heart, success in your life. So we need to be wary of Satan's schemes. We need to be concerned about our pride in our hearts. David, he bought into Satan's lie. Independent of God's word or God's leading, despite the reluctance of his commander, Joab, and the other captains of his army that said, David, we're not saved by sword or spear. Are you sure you want to do this? David pushes through, and it says the word of David prevailed over the captains of the army. So look with me at the middle of verse 4. Verse 4 continues and says, Therefore... Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan, and they camped in Aroer, on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad, and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead, and to the land of Tatim Hodshai. They came to Dan Jaan, and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to the south, Judah, as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. So Joab and his men, they traveled all over Israel from the north to the south. They covered it all and it took them over nine months just to count 
all of the people. And this means that David had nine months and 20 days to realize, what am I doing? Nine months and 20 days to repent and say, you know what, I'm wrong here. But David doesn't repent, not yet. He, he continues. And so verse 9, Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Then do we read, And David's heart rejoiced in the strength of his military? No, it doesn't say that. And David's heart was glad that he counted the people? No, we don't read that either. Look at verse 10. It says, And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. After the deed was done, David felt convicted. And that is a very, very good thing. You see, it shows us that David was close enough to the Lord to feel God's righteous conviction. Not only that, but David responded to that conviction. Look at verse 10 again. It says, And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David knows his mistake. He knows his foolishness. David feels convicted, and so he cries out to God, asking him to take away his sin. But do you know what's really scary? What's really scary is when you sin and you don't feel bad afterwards. That's a terrifying place to be. You see, when you are numb to the Holy Spirit, because you've made such a habit of ignoring him. It just becomes second nature. When you're so numb to your conscience because you've made a habit of ignoring it, you've tweaked your conscience. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. The idea is that if you burn yourself so bad, then you can lose feeling, right? Because it burns, it numbs that, that part of your body. Well, the idea here is that if we continually reject our conscience, setting off that alarm in our, in our head saying, hey, Jared, you just stepped out of line. Jared, you just broke God's law. And I continue to ignore that. Then I'm, I'm searing my own conscience. And I can reach a point where I don't even feel bad for my sin. I can reach a point where I don't even feel convicted for stepping out of line. And so Paul says here that you can sear your conscience because it will stop working because you've stopped listening. Friends, please hear this warning. If you sin and don't feel convicted, then you may not even be saved because you've made such a habit of resisting the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life. You see, you cannot truly repent of your sin until you first recognize your sin for what it is, rebellion against the one and only holy God. And if we don't feel convicted in our sin, then we don't recognize sin for what it is, which means we haven't repented from it. Don't let Satan's lies give you a false hope or false salvation. Don't listen to your flawed conscience or your wicked heart. Don't live by the standards of this world, but let God's word declare what is right and what is wrong. Let the Holy Spirit bring conviction to your heart. And when that happens, when you sin and your heart convicts you, when you sin and the Holy Spirit convicts you, that's good. But make sure that's not all that happens. Don't be the fool who says, well, I feel bad when I sin, so I must be good. 
No. Don't take confidence in that you feel bad. Take confidence in that when you sin, you repent. And your confidence is in that Jesus paid for your sin on the cross. That's our confidence. And so when we feel convicted by the Holy Spirit, or God uses our conscience to convict us, then respond, repent, go to the Lord, and then be confident in Jesus. Now back to our passage in verses 11 through 25, we read about God's corrective rebuke. Verse 11 says, Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So God is going to give David three options of how he wants to be punished, how he wants to be corrected for his sin of this census. And so verse 13, Gad, the seer, he came to David and told him, and he said to him, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. David knew God is full of mercy. Mercy means not getting the punishment that we do deserve. And since David knew that he was being punished and that he deserved it, David says, well, God is merciful. So I'd rather fall into his hands than in the hands of men. And so verse 15, so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, or from north to south, 70,000 men of the people died. David had put his confidence in the military and their strength and numbers. And in this plague of judgment, God shows just how quickly those numbers can change. Just like that, 70,000 of his fighting men are dead. Rather than in the military or the government or in money or in relationships, our confidence and hope should be in the Lord. Everything else is temporary and fleeting. Now, some of you might be wondering, 70,000 people died because David was prideful and counted? That seems a little harsh. I, I don't understand why God's judgment was so rough. But I want us to remember, God hates pride. God hates pride. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, it says, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And there at the top of the list, a proud look. It's the first one of the things God hates, pride. In Proverbs chapter, 18, or sorry, chapter 8, verse 13, it says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. God hates pride. Pastor Larry Osborne says this, which I think is fitting, so I'm going to quote it. He says, Unfortunately, many of us fail to grasp how dangerous pride is. We tend to see it as a small sin. It's not the kind of thing you go to prison for. It falls somewhere between failing to floss and driving too fast. It's something to work on, but it's no big deal. How true is that for our culture today? If somebody among you that claims to be a follower of Jesus falls into sin and they commit adultery, we're horrified. But if somebody among you who claims to follow Jesus gets prideful, I think we tend to say, you don't do that. Slap on the wrist. Don't talk that way. We don't treat it 
like God does. God hates pride. It's the top of his list of things that he hates. So don't believe the lie that pride is just a small sin. In our story with David's pride, God took out 70,000 people. It's a big deal. God cares about it a lot. And also, remember that the other reason that God took such a harsh judgment on the nation of Israel, 70,000 people, it was because of verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. You see, God wasn't just punishing David. God was using this to correct the nation as a whole because they had somehow, some way, turned away from the Lord. God was correcting them as well. So look at verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. We get the idea that this plague and destruction would have carried on. It would have continued into Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And many more people would have died, but God stopped it short because he is merciful. God says, you deserve more, but I'm going to stop here because I'm full of mercy. And so verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, Surely I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. This is one of the reasons God calls David a man after God's own heart. You see, when David sinned, he not only repented, but David owned it. David took full responsibility for his sin. And he also accepted God's punishment or rebuke because of it. David admits that it was his sin. Therefore, God's judgment should fall on him and his family. But David forgets that because he is king, he leads the nation. And therefore, his sin affects the nation. David was still learning this lesson that our sin affects more people than we realize. And so, verse 18, And Gad, the seer, came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming towards him. So Aruna went out, and he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, Well, it's to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, My lord the king, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are the oxen for burnt sacrifice, and the threshing implements, and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. So this man, Aruna, he hears what David is coming to do, and he says, Take it all. I'll give it to you. I'll give you the place for the sacrifice. I'll give you the oxen to kill for the sacrifice. And their harness and their yoke, you can use that as the wood for the sacrifice. Here's it all. It's all yours. <clears throat> and so verse 24, then the king said to Aruna, <clears throat> excuse me. Then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. David understood <clears throat> that a sacrifice that cost him nothing wasn't really a sacrifice. 
It wouldn't be David's sacrifice. It would be Aruna's sacrifice. It reminds us of the passage in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, where it says, And he, Jesus, looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Those were the smallest copper coin in that day. And so Jesus said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these, out of their abundance, have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. You see, the idea is that Jesus doesn't value our sacrifices based on their earthly cost, but on their personal cost to you and to me. David sought to honor the Lord by paying full price for this place for the altar, for the sacrifice. And so verse 24 finishes with, so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now in this passage, it just mentions David buying the threshing floor, that was the little area there, and the oxen. But in our parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it says David also bought the whole place. He bought the surrounding area for 600 shekels of gold. And this land would become the site of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. That area just to the north of David's city of Jerusalem, it expanded there up on top of the hill, and that would be the site of the temple. Today, we don't call that place the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. We call it the Temple Mount. That's in Jerusalem today. And so, verse 25 And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Don't miss that. It was only after the sacrifice that God's judgment was withdrawn. David already said sorry. David already confessed his sin. But it was the sacrifice that stopped the plague. So too, among those same hills in Jerusalem, there would be coming a greater sacrifice where God sacrificed his son, Jesus, on the hill. And as Jesus was sacrificed, so too he stopped the plague that is our sin by paying for our debt in full. Because of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, we can be spared of God's righteous judgment. You see, salvation is free because Jesus paid the price. Salvation is free because Jesus paid the price. He did all the work on our behalf. He lived the perfect sinless life. He suffered and died in our place. He rose from the grave, conquering sin and death on your behalf, on my behalf. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace, remember that word grace, getting something you don't deserve, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast." The fact that salvation is a gift of God means we can't earn it. If somebody was going to give you a brand new car, and you said, well, I don't have much, but here's $10. It's no longer a gift. That's a killer deal, right? But it's no longer a gift, even though $10 is nothing for the cost of a new car. And so, too, our, our petty efforts are like $10 to God's gift of salvation. But we don't say, well, I helped. No, it's a free gift. We just receive the gift of salvation by putting our faith in Jesus. That means you're trusting him to save you, not because you're good, but because he is good. And so Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, they told us that we're saved by grace and not by works. But look at the very next verse in verse 10. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You and I, you and I were created and saved so that we could work. In fact, even before you were saved, even before you were born, God prepared good works for you to walk in, things for you to do in his name. You see, while salvation is free, we also learn that salvation is proved by how you live. It's proved by how you live. You cannot prove you are saved by simply saying, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he died on the cross and rose again. We read in James chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where James says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The idea is, in other words, even the demons know and believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus died on the cross, and that Jesus rose again. So does that mean that the demons are saved? Heck no. No way. Of course not. James continues and he says in verse 20, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? James declares that if our faith is only words, not action, then all we have is a dead faith. It would be like if David didn't pay anything to Aruna, but he took all the gifts and he gave it to the Lord and said, whew, glad that's off my back. I prayed the prayer. I'm good to go. I believe that Jesus is real. I believe that he died and rose again. Now I'm going to live my life. But I know that when I die, when I'm done doing what I want to do, I'm going to go to heaven because I believe that Jesus is Jesus. And God says, no. That faith is meaningless. That faith is not genuine. It's not real. If you think you are going to heaven because you believe in Jesus, but you are living in sin, if you are living for yourself, if you are trying to follow Jesus without repentance, or you're calling yourself a Christian, but you're living like the world, then please wake up before it's too late. Don't keep believing those lies. You are only a Christian by name and not by practice, if that's how you live. Your nominal faith only gives you a false sense of salvation. Jesus warns about this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So according to Jesus, calling him Lord is not enough. We have to actually obey. We can't just call him Lord. We have to treat him as Lord. He's our master. We do what he says. Whether we feel like it or not, we do what he says. We seek to live for him. And then Jesus continues in verse 22 when he says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice two things Jesus rebukes in these false believers. First, he declares, I never knew you. They had no relationship with Jesus. Although they claimed to have the right words and they even claimed some spiritual works, there was no relationship. Second, Jesus calls them, you who practice lawlessness. Like a doctor practices medicine, he continues in it. He or she continues to help people medically. So too, if you and I are practicing lawlessness or practicing sin, it's the idea that we're continuing in it. We're not repentant, but we're saying, well, I'm just going to do me 
But I believe these truths about Jesus, so I'll be fine one day. Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus will rebuke and cast away those on judgment day. Jesus' point in this passage is simple. On judgment day, there will be many who think they are saved. And tragically, they will be mistaken. They will be turned away. And they will realize that their faith was dead. They will realize that their faith wasn't genuine and that they only ever had a false salvation. Church, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Draw near to Jesus and his free gift of salvation. And as a result of having your faith in Jesus, as a result of being saved, live your life seeking to obey and follow him. We read in James chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, where it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So before Abraham offers Isaac, before Abraham does anything, God says, Abe, I'm going to take you who are old and wrinkly and have no kids, and I'm going to give you too many descendants to count. And Abraham says, uh, that's amazing, and I believe you. And God says, you're saved. Already, just by faith. Abraham believed God. And because of his belief, God says, Abraham, you're righteous because you are trusting me to do what I promised. And then down the road, when God says, Abraham, I want you to take your one and only son, Isaac, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham does. He goes to the point of holding the knife, and then God says, okay, that's enough. Now I know that you love me more than anything else. You see, Abraham's act, his works of offering Isaac, they proved that he really did believe God. His works proved that he really did believe God would take care of that promise. That even if God made Abraham go through and offer Isaac and kill him, God would somehow raise Isaac back from the grave to make Isaac be the father of many nations and fulfill that promise that he gave to Abraham. And so Abraham's obedience proved his faith was genuine. His works made his faith perfect or complete. And so too, let your works, let your obedience to God make your faith complete. Don't follow Jesus with only your words. Follow Jesus with how you live. As we come to this closing passage of David's life, David's a great example of what this looks like to live for God. An example of how to. For 43 weeks, David's ups and downs. It's been a bumpy ride. David has some extremely dark and sinful stains on his life. But in spite of his failures, David consistently redirected himself to God. And so we have the man after God's own heart. He wasn't sinless. He was far from perfect. In fact, sometimes David was just plain dumb. Praise the Lord, because I can relate to that. Because I am not sinless. I am far from perfect. And sometimes I am just plain dumb in how I live. And you know what? I can look at David and say, you know what? God can use him. God can save him. He can save me. He can use me. Here's the point, your last fill in the blank on your note sheet. Christianity is not about how many bumps you hit or how hard you fall. It's about getting back up again to follow Jesus till the end. Follow Jesus till the end, church. Not just with your words, 
but with your actions. David was near the end of his life, and he stumbled big time. 70,000 people dying big time. That's a big fall. And yet, amazingly, God doesn't remember him as David, the adulterer. Not as David, the prideful. Not as David, the stumbler. God, in his grace, remembers him as David, the man after God's own heart. That's amazing. Are you stumbling along? Me too. But let's keep pressing on to live for Jesus. Don't focus on your failures. Don't focus on your bumps and your bruises. Focus on the finishing line. Focus on Jesus till the end by his power and for his glory. Because you see, David's not the hero of this story. Jesus is. And you're not the hero of your story. Jesus is. To him be all the glory. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your goodness and for your love. God, we are grateful that you can take somebody that is stumbling and broken and hard-headed like David And God, not only do you forgive his sins, but you look at him and you say, he's a man after my own heart. God, I don't know that I can truly fathom how great your mercy and grace are. But I trust that they are great. And I trust that you freely offer them. And God, for anybody here that is feeling your Holy Spirit speak to their heart, feeling your Holy Spirit convict them and say, hey, there's something you need to surrender. There's this area in your life I need you to give. Maybe it's everything. God, I pray that you would give us the strength and the humility we need to not just look to you with our words and say, we believe you are Jesus, but to look at you with our heart and say, God, I surrender to you. I I give it to you. God, I repent of my sin. I repent of my rebellion. God, help me to not stumble as often. And God, when I do, help me to get back up quicker and to keep my eyes on you, to finish this race in your strength, for your glory, for your name. God, would you help us to be a church that fulfills the works that you have prepared for us to do from before time. God, we love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship together.